I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. One, two, three, four. Hello and welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter. This is where we round up all the best bits from my talk radio show and bring you a range of diverse, interesting, thoughtful and hopefully well-informed voices to show you all sides of the world. This week, we are following up on Grimestar Wiley's tweets and talking about anti-Semitism with freelance journalist Sandy Rushdie. Plus, Farah Store, editor-in-chief at Elle magazine, joins us to talk about the social mobility campaign that they're running. And we speak to one couple about what it's like to be a transgender couple having a baby. First up, we talk to Sandy Rushdie, freelance journalist, about Wiley's tweets and anti-Semitism here in the UK. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Uh, so if you have if you have a Twitter account, you might have seen the name Wiley trending. If, like me, you weren't aware of who he actually was, uh, then you might have looked him up and thought, why is this man bombarding his Twitter account with what can only be called an anti-Semitic rant? Um, well, he... Nobody's quite sure why he decided to do it, but it is going big. So we are talking about it here tonight and joining us to talk about it is Sandy Rashti, freelance journalist. Before she does, let's hear some of the things that he has been saying. Crawl out from under all your little rocks and come and defend your Jewish privilege now. Come and do it. Listen, I'm not even, I'm not even like, don't try and say, oh, he, he listens to Farrakhan. I didn't need to listen to Farrakhan to know what I'm saying right now, okay? Get your top Jewish man. Put him on Zoom with me. Yeah, go on. And you know what? There's no point talking about you can't paint everybody with the same brush. Remember I told you, when Judgment Day comes, who will you stand with? Will you stand with your friends? Will you stand with your family? Will you stand with your mates from down the street? Who will you stand with? Right, because when Judgment Day comes, you will stand with your people. Don't try it with me. That is Wiley on Instagram there. I mean, I think we can all agree that it's the sort of thing that if he was saying that about, if he was, say, a white man saying that about the black community, we would absolutely condemn him for it. And yet social media doesn't seem to be taking any action. Why is that? Here to tell us about the impact that perhaps social media has had on racism and particularly on anti-Semitism is freelance journalist Sandy Rashti. Hi, Sandy. Hello. Hello. How are you? Good. Thank you. Um, first of all, tell us when you saw this, I, I, think, I described it earlier as a meltdown from Wiley. Um, what did you think? Were you shocked by it or did, were you just like, yeah, I've seen this all before? Well, it, it's combined. It's a combined um, 
thing because on the one hand, yes, anti-Semitism has always been prevalent. It's an age-old theory. And you've seen it on social media accounts repeatedly. I think it's particularly um, hurtful and particularly worrying because it's coming from such a public figure. Um, I think it's really important we don't dismiss him as one madman on a rant with a personal axe to grind, whether it's with his mm. management, who he's constantly referred to throughout his Instagram and um, social media posts. Um, and that's because he has such a reach. This is a man who has made an MBE. This is a man who is looked up to as a grime artist. This is a man who has a combined social media following of almost one million people. So it wasn't necessarily surprising, but it's definitely concerning. And it's, it's you know, even more concerning that he mm. seems to show absolutely no remorse for comments he's made. In fact, he's doubled down. I, I've been scrolling on his Instagram yeah. account over the past hour and he's almost goading the Jewish community. You know, he's continuing over the past 20 or so minutes. He's saying, why don't you show me how much power you've got? Why don't you send Interpol for me? Do you think another race of people could do all this stuff? And these comments are so dangerous because I think it's really important that people remember that anti-Semitic conspira anti conspiracy theories about Jews controlling the world, about mm. Jews being puppet masters, having so much power, being subject to exemptions, are the theories that were used by Nazis to justify the Holocaust. They're mm. really, really dangerous. So I think that's a really interesting point, you know, which I want to follow up on because one of the things that I think we have sort of slightly lost sight of in this discussion is that almost because what he's saying, I am sitting here in my kind of liberal middle class bubble going, well, it's so ridiculous that I don't give it any credence. We've actually lost track of why those things had such power and actually why they are dangerous. Do you think that social media has allowed those theories almost to become commonplace discussion to to create a subsect of social media which talks about it as if it is fact well absolutely and you know with social media it's it's a double-edged sword because on the one hand you see such hurtful things but on the other hand it's it can't be hidden anymore because people are hiding behind their keyboards they're feeling safe and if you look at his post you know post that went jewish people you make me sick where he compares the jewish community to the kkk and so on and so forth you know these mm. social media posts haven't been routinely dismissed or ignored yeah. you know they've been liked they've been shared people mm. have added more conspiracy theories to these posts so it's really important that, you know, what we say is Britain overall obviously is a wonderful place for the Jewish community to live. But there is a clear sector of society and social media has shown that that still believe in these very, very dangerous anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. One of the things that somebody has sent through to me that I think is really interesting is that this is not just... Um, and this is expanding on what you're saying, it's not just a problem with Wiley. It's saying, last week Madonna posted a video to her Instagram account linking to a speech by Louis Farrakhan, the Nation of Islam mm. leader who spouted anti-Semitic homophobic misogynistic rhetoric for the past 20 years. He's praised Hitler, accused Jews of controlling the US government, etc. Actually, what we're doing in social media is we are jumping on bandwagons of support without, I hope, in the case of Madonna, doing our research and actually knowing who we're supporting and what we're saying. I mean, absolutely. Louis Farrakhan is a law unto himself. And, you know, it's no, it's been 
he's been saying these kinds of things for years and years and has long got away with it. Um, and social media, on the one hand, does allow a lot of people to jump on the bandwagon, but it can be a very powerful tool in a positive way as well. We shouldn't be frightened um, to talk about you know, the powerful effect social media had when it came to the Black Lives Matter movement. You know, when it came to this issue, when you came to seeing what, what Wiley tweeting and putting on Instagram, it's really upsetting because you have people like me, you have journalists, you have social media pundits, you have politicians going on their accounts saying this is terrible. But you haven't actually seen a lot of reaction on social media from people in the industry itself. After the Black Lives Matter protests going on and the campaigns were going on and it was really at its height, you would have been hard pressed to find a celebrity, a footballer, a musician with a clear social media profile, not tweeting or sharing some kind of statement of support, some kind of, you know, campaign of solidarity on their social media account. But it almost feels, or at least it does to a lot of people in the Jewish community, that when it comes to anti-Semitism, that level of support does not exist. There's a hierarchy of racism and social media has almost shown that. I mean, I'm just thinking about my social media right now. So we've been talking about Wiley here this evening. I've been thinking about it this afternoon in preparation for the show. And actually, I don't think I have tweeted or retweeted anything about it, mm. which is, I, I wouldn't have occurred to me to think about that, but is a fact and I haven't. And I think that is exactly as you say, because my timeline hasn't been flooded in the way, say, yeah. for example, it was with Black Lives Matter. And, you know, I, I don't want to say one one is more important than the other or not. Obviously not. It's equally important. But it's something that I think we have to be aware of, which is what are we giving time and energy to? And if we are, if we want to genuinely have an equal society, we need to be aware of the places we're not giving our time and energy as well. Of course. And I think awareness of that is a very, very, you know, positive step towards at least, you know, during, like you say, during the Black Lives Matter protest, you would you would have been hard pressed to find someone who didn't put up a picture of a black blackout Tuesday or some kind of statement or share some kind of video. But when it comes to, oh, you know, you know, something like Wiley, you'll say, oh, he's just a bit mad yeah. or he's just a bit. But actually, no, he's not. Because if you look at the statements beneath that, mm. if you look at the amount of support he's got and if you look at the silence from people in the industry, people he's worked with and um, other celebrities he's been pictured with, it's really upsetting. And there are people in the Jewish community on their personal accounts who have been saying this just wouldn't happen if it was another race. Mm. Do you think that we have, um, that we're unaware actually of the level of anti-Semitism in the UK today? I think that is certainly the case. There is so many different forms of racism, so mm -hmm. many different forms of anti-Semitism. Some of it is subtle. Um, you'd be hard pressed to find you know, someone who's Jewish who, you know, won't share anecdotal stories in the workplace where things might have been said, you know, in a ha-ha way or things that might have not been said explicitly. And there, there is definitely an issue of anti-Semitism in the UK. And, and I think more awareness of it and people talking about it and not being frightened to talk about it um, without, you know, being worried about causing a fuss. There's a lot of that. We don't want to cause a fuss. You know, there's yeah. already been too much going on about anti-Semitism. People are tired of hearing about it. But if it's allowed to continue and people aren't aware of it, you're going to have people like Wiley having the confidence to talk about it and just be ignored, you know, by the liberal middle classes mm -hmm. as just someone who's a bit mad. 
and by the more dangerous sectors of society who are going, oh, good, he's actually talking openly and honestly for once. What would you say to somebody who is looking at those um, those tweets and being like, oh, he is just a bit mad. He's one man and his opinions don't really represent what it's like for Jewish people here in the UK. I, I would definitely ask them if they would say the same of another public figure, mm. another person who's been given an accolade like an MBE, um, who was allowed to, whether and ask them if they were tweeting about another race, would they have the same reaction? And I don't think they would. Yeah, I agree. What would you like to see um, Twitter, Instagram do about this? Because your Twitter took Banders account, I think, for about half an hour, didn't they? And then he yeah. put him back again. Uh, yeah. They've deleted some of his tweets, but not all of them. There is, I think, they would argue, you know, he's not at, he's the tweets we've left up are not encouraging violence. Therefore, they are kind of within our guidelines, and there's not a lot we can do. What do you think to that response? It's a difficult but one because I'm a journalist, I'm not in the business of censorship. And I think mm. someone airing their own views rather than hiding behind them yeah. is an important thing for people to see. However, I do think a one stop a one stop policy for everyone should be applied. And I'm not in the business of comparisons, but for example, when Katie Hopkins or people like Katie Hopkins go too far, they're banned, they're you know, they're removed from social media. When it's people like Wiley, people are more cautious. And, you know, the term, even across UK media, has been widely used, alleged anti-Semitism. It's not alleged. It's very clear anti-Semitism. Mm. But people are frightened of using it. Sandy, thank you so much for talking to us. Um, really fascinating points you've made me think. Thank you so much. Sandy Rashti, freelance journalist there, talking about tweets from Wiley. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Now, let's get back to our guest. Now, over the years, we've talked lots about how we create better diversity within the media. It's actually what this show was formed for. Um, but one woman who has taken it into her own hands and is doing something to change not just how diversity in the media appears in terms of race or age 
or sexuality or ability, but also the one that everyone says is too hard, which is socioeconomic background. How do we help people into a profession that is notoriously middle class? Our next guest is trying to work it out and she thinks she might have an answer. Farah Storr is the editor-in-chief at Elle magazine and they have launched the Social Mobility Campaign. Hi, Farah. Hi, how are you? Good, thank you. Thanks so much for joining us this evening. Um, can tell us, uh, tell us to start off with, what is the campaign and how does it work? So essentially, it's a partnership that Elle magazine did on our September issue with the Social Mobility Commission, um, of which I'm a commissioner, I should, should add. Um, and what we wanted to do was we wanted to open up the making of historically one of the most important issues of the year for us. Um, and we wanted to work with students from across the country. So the idea kind of a few months ago was myself and my team had always had this dream that we would take Elle on the road and we would go into schools in kind of what uh, are designated as cold spots across the country. So in other words, those areas where, you know, opportunities are still on the ground, particularly for those coming out of education. Um, and then, of course, lockdown happened and we couldn't do that. But actually what we started to think was, well, actually, if we could mentor 12 students from those cold spots across the country and we could do it virtually, what we actually could do is we could, um, we could reach a far greater kind of canvas of the country. And so that's what we've done. We've got these 12 amazing students from, you know, everywhere from Hastings, Norwich, Ipswich, to right up to Sunderland and, and Oldham, who have worked on the September issue with us. And it's a mentorship which will go on for the rest of the year. I think that's absolutely incredible. And I love that not only have you decided to do this, but actually you used the restrictions imposed by COVID-19 to create something really brilliant. Yeah, I think, uh, I, you know, we could have waited, but I just thought, you know, why wait on something like this? And, mm -hmm. you know, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of talk at the moment about diversity and, 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 and you and I actually in the past talked about yep. this body diversity, racial diversity, but class and particularly that intersection actually of, of where race and class meet yeah. is really hard and class of course you're totally right is the one that everybody goes well it's too big we don't know how to address it and it just felt like why wait why sit on it you know the country is is growing ever more divided and actually we know there's a consequence of covid um poverty particularly child poverty um is going to increase and actually opportunities for young people is going to get um, woefully worse. So we weren't going to sit on this idea. We wanted to do it as quickly as possible. What else do you think the publishing industry should be doing here? Because, you know, it, it is a notoriously middle class industry. We are a terrible for doing things like unpaid internships and expecting people to work ridiculous hours on what is ba basically minimum wage. How do we start as an industry being better about this? Well, I think there's lots of, of, of different routes, actually. Um, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, historically, fortunately, I mean, they still exist, of course, but um, certainly in my experience over the last few years, those terrible unpaid internships are being phased out because you're right, that was one of, one of the, the kind of, it wasn't even a secret, actually. It was that, you know, young students knew that if they couldn't afford to do that, they weren't really going to get um, a rung on the ladder. And, of course, that meant that kids who had a financial advantage could do it. So that kind of needs to be eradicated. But I think also, and this has also been my, my, my big thing, it's two things. One is, what does it look like to get into the media? And, you know, when I was coming through, 
it was very much favoured that you had been to one of the Russell Group universities, of which, mm-hmm. by the way, I did go to. Yeah. Um, Oxbridge, hugely favoured. I mean, actually, over 30% of the media attended Oxbridge. Over 40% um, have had a private education. Um, and actually, in my day, uh, and, and it still happens, I know, postgraduate education is favoured. And, you know, there's no grants for those things. They're really mm-hmm. expensive. And I've always thought, you know, if you've got a good editor, if you understand the world and if you watch the world... The best journalists I know, actually, they left school at kind of uh, 16. And and I don't think you have to have this elite education in order to make it in our industry. And then the other thing, and this is the really important thing, and again, I think this is a consequence of of COVID if if leaders listen in, is this whole idea of you have to move down to London to make it. You know, Mm. media, particularly magazines, always been very London-centric. And that means, you know, that messaging to people who live elsewhere in the country is, and this is definitely the messaging I got, which is if you want to get ahead, you have to leave where you started out in life. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think now, I think with, with, with working remotely, you know, editors can have journalists who are, who are um, you know, who are living in Scotland or, you know, are living in Newcastle. And they'll be better journalists for that because they'll pick up on those stories that we in our kind of media London bubble down here do not pick up on. I remember when I was working for a big news organisation a few years ago and they did an internship scheme for 16 to 19 year olds I think it was and what happened was that we got in some really great kids but nobody had actually thought about how the internship was going to work so there were suddenly 16 year olds in the office who had never been in an office environment before didn't know what they were there to do didn't know how to make the most of the internship and lots of managers who had no idea how to manage them how have you ensured that both sides get the most from this experience? Yeah, I mean, it's absolutely true. Well, well, there's a couple of things. I mean, one thing is every one of those students has been given um, a kind of designated um, mentor. And, and it's somebody that we've looked at kind of, you know, the people on my team, their background, are they well suited to this individual? Do we think there will be a close connection? Um, so there is some sort of degree of empathy there. Also, you know, I think my whole problem with mentorships, and they're brilliant, by the way, but I've done many where, you know, they, they, they drop off after a month or so. And that's why, you know, both L and the Social Mobility Commission were like, well, look, if you want to have long-lasting change and you want, you know, kind of 16 or 18-year-olds to understand what it's like to make it in the media, um, you need longer than that. You, you need a year's commitment. Um, and, and so all of the, the students, you know, we offered them, they didn't have to take us up on it, um, but we offered them, you know, after we finished the September issue, do you want to stay on with us for the year with your mentor? They all did. And actually, you know, the truth is, Harriet, hopefully that year then becomes a lifetime. And I've always thought that about real mentorships, that person should be in your life really forever, kind of opening doors and, and, and presenting opportunities and opening up their networks when they can. So I think the kind of... The, the length of time is, is really crucial as well. And, and pairing the right mentor with the, with the right mentee. You have a history of actually looking at this issue and thinking about how do we solve it? Because I remember you did a scheme before where when people were coming to work, I think it was when you were at Cosmo, coming down to do work experience, you actually created flats to put them up in so yeah. that they didn't have to deal with the, oh my gosh, I can't afford to pay rent, what am I going to do question. Why yeah. is it so important for you? 
Well, we're doing it again, actually. Um, I, 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 I probably, love this I idea. It's so great. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're doing it um, in October. And actually, you're right. We, we did it in Cosmo. But this year, we're doing it across Cosmo, L, Women's Health. So we've really extended the scheme. And you're right. It wasn't just flats. It was travel, groceries. Mm. So that when those students or scholarship winners get there, they don't have to worry. Um, I don't know where it comes from. I guess it comes from, you know, I didn't grow up in poverty Mm. but I did grow up in a tough area I grew up in Salford and so whilst you know I didn't struggle you know my family were all right my dad worked really hard you know he's an immigrant but he worked his way up very very quickly um I knew what it was like I, I I saw what what it was like for other people around me and I think also you know the last two years working with the social mobility commission it's opened my eyes up even more Um, which is, you know, it's not just getting people through the door. It's kind of once they're through the door, how do you make them feel comfortable? You know, even those small things which we kind of forget about and, and and, you know, glossy magazines, um, you know, that idea of something being glossy can put a lot of people off. I mean, language is very, kind of very dangerous. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, when I was coming through, I used to hear the word polished all the time. you know, I was always told with your accent, you're never going to work in fashion. There are certain publications you'll just never get, you'll just never get into. And so I think I just wanted to make sure that when I was in a position of power, that I tried to remove as many hurdles as I could, because God knows it's hard enough as it is trying to make it. Mm. And yeah, I guess that's where it comes from. Well, I think what you're doing is incredible, Farah. Thank you so much for doing it. And to any other media organisation out there who thinks it is a bit tough and they're not quite sure what they're going to do and, oh, we've got such budget problems anyway. Um, If they can do it in women's magazines, which is, quite frankly, going through a notoriously tough time right now, I think the rest of us can do it as well. Uh, That was the brilliant Farah Store there, editor-in-chief of Elle magazine, talking about how she is bringing social mobility to the publishing industry. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. You can get in touch on all the socials on at Badass Women's Hour. Now, our next guests have a fairly unique story. Both transgender, they met, became a couple, fell in love, got married, wanted to start a family, and they are about to become one of, if not the first, transgender couple in the UK to have a baby. In fact, they have happened earlier this year. Uh, we are going to talk to them about their story now. It's Hannah and Jake Graf with their baby Millie. Hi, Hannah and Jake. Hi there, how are you? Good, thank you. Um, Jake, I gave us a very short summary of your story, the two of you there, but tell us a little bit about how you met and when you decided you wanted to have a baby, what happened next? Well, firstly, we must clarify, we are by no means the first transgender parents in the UK. There have been trans parents in the UK for decades and decades. Um, we do believe that we might possibly be the first couple to use a surrogate. And obviously, you know, we're very, very lucky to have been able to do that. Um, but, you know, there are a lot of trans parents out there. Um, but, you know, we, I mean, we've wanted to have, I wanted to have a baby since I was in my 20s. And, you know, I always wanted to be a dad. And uh, when I met Hannah about five years ago, it was before we'd even met, in fact, the first phone conversation we ever had, I said to Hannah, how would you feel about kids and marriage? Because that's where I'm headed. And Hannah sort of quite nervously said, well, you know, I, I'd be open to that. And uh, that was kind of always on our on our horizon. So, you know, luckily Hannah was up for kids and 
you know, amazingly, five years later, we now have our little three-month-old sleeping in the room next door, which is certainly more than I could ever have dreamed of, and I think Hannah would agree. Yeah, the fact that she's sleeping, perfect. (laughs) (laughs) Hannah, what is it like being a mum? How how have you eased into it, particularly in the kind of weird times that are lockdown? I I mean, I think a lockdown is is a strange time to have a baby, but at the same time, I think most people, when they have a baby, you know, you kind of go into some sort of lockdown anyway. So I'm not sure it's that different, but for me, um, it's been a really wonderful experience. I wasn't quite sure... How, what I was going to be like as a mother. I wasn't sure if I was going to live up to the expectations. Um, but in those very early days when Jake was having some sleep and it was just me and her, I realised that she was utterly dependent on me. And, you know, I was a mother and that was it. And all we've done is try to look after her as best we can. And, you know, I've loved every minute. You've both been very open about your story. That takes a lot of courage, particularly in today's day and age when it seems like people do not have anything better to do with their time than jump on the internet and argue with people what kind of what gave you the courage and the bravery to do that i mean from my point of view i grew up in in 80s london where the word transgender wasn't even used you know it was kind of transsexual at best and it was never said in a positive way and i knew that i was a boy from the age of about two or three and you know, obviously in a world where no one knows what it means and it's not, you know, there was no internet back then. We weren't present in films. We weren't in books. We weren't, you know, there was no mermaids charity to kind of help kids, of, you know, with trans kids and their parents. So we, re- uh, you know, I grew up really thinking I was the only boy in the world who didn't have a boy's body. And I really felt like there was something very, very wrong with me. And that, that kind of feeling of self-doubt and, you know, low self-esteem carried well into my adult years. And I always, you know, as soon as I sort of medically transitioned, I, you know, decided that I would put myself out there as a as a role model or as, as you know, just some sort of figure that young trans boys could look up to and think, well, you know, that's someone who's doing something with his life, who's made something of himself. And, you know, even, even just the sort of simple act of transitioning and kind of being out there proudly, I think, was something that we hadn't really seen before. Mm-hmm. So, you know, from my point of view, it was that, that sort of mantra of, you know, be the person that you so desperately needed when you were when you were a a child, when you were younger. You said you had the baby through surrogate. How was the surrogacy experience? Because obviously it's it's different here in the UK than perhaps we might have seen in the US where it's almost, it becomes more of a business transaction. Here in the UK, it has to be done as a, almost as a gift. How did you find it? Yeah, it is very much a, um, oh, speak of the devil, our baby (laughs) is just uh, making a little bit of noise. So one of us might have to She's very welcome. Um, but um, no, it is very different as it is in the US. It's not commercial. And so, as you say, you can't pay for a surrogate. And it's very much a, an altruistic um, thing that the surrogate is doing. And it is something that you kind of do together. It's a journey gone together. It's kind of mutually beneficial um, in, in that sense. And so it's very, it feels a little bit like dating. You've got to find someone who wants the same type of experience as you, that kind of matches your expectations of what your relationship will be going forward. Um, so it, it is a bit of a, a difficult thing to do, but once you find someone you're thinking with them, it's the most amazing thing. You know, they help you and they're now in your lives. And we're very lucky. Our surrogate Laura is amazing. She's given us this amazing gift, and you know we're having you know such a positive experience. I think one of the things that lots of parents are thinking about at the moment is how they talk to their children about gender. So I think they're becoming more and more aware that potentially their child 
might be transgender, they might be in a school class with another child who's transgender, they want to have those discussions earlier with them about what gender means. How do you think your experiences are going to inform how you talk to Millie about gender? I think, I mean, look, we we want to be really careful not to put our gender identities and what we've gone through onto Millie because obviously that that is not her cross to bear um obviously we'll explain who we are and you know how she came to be and how we came to be where we are and who we are and find each other and marry when that's age appropriate to do so um you know I remember years ago I had a really right on friend who who felt that they should really talk to their four-year-old about gender and about you know if she liked girls and I said no you know honestly unless a child is coming to you and sort of saying that they they're feeling that way there's there's no really real need to broach those subjects unless they're you know sort of you know age appropriate and obviously there does come a time when it is age appropriate and I think so long as those things aren't hidden away and so long as the child isn't made to feel like those things are, are wrong and like there's something sort of dirty or deviant about those things then they will learn in 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 good time and you know whenever Millie asks us questions then we will answer honestly and candidly because we have nothing to be ashamed of you know our gender identities are unfortunately something we've kind of you know had to deal with and we hope that the next generation of trans kids it won't be so hard for them and for those kids who have trans kids in their class you know I think again there is great teaching in schools these days that we are whether or not you're trans or you're gay or you're black or you're white or you're Muslim or you're Jewish that we should all just be accepting. I think that should really be the mantra, whether it's about gender or anything else. What would you say to perhaps other parents who their child might be transgender or they are concerned that they should? this is something they should be aware of? What advice would you give them? I think the advice that we give is that the only thing you really have to do is listen to and love your child mm. and everything else will kind of work itself out. I mean, I think... There's a lot of kind of um, narrative in the press that, you know, there's this people are trying to do things to children. All these things happen really fast and it's loads of drugs really quickly. Whereas in reality, these things are a huge long process with lots of hoops to jump through and lots of kind of checkpoints and safeguards along the way. But all that you need to do as a parent or as as an adult talking to a child is to say, I love you, I respect you and I listen to you and, you know, we'll work it out together. As long as you have that ability to be accepting, then you can have open and honest and frank conversations and you can find out what's generally in the best interest of the child. Absolutely. I remember when I, when I told mom, and I was at the ripe old age of 28 when I told my mom, and the first thing she said to me is, you know, what are we going to do about it? And I think that works at any age. As, you know, as a young child, if someone had said to me, okay, this is how you feel, what are we going to do about it? And we'll do this together. It just would have made all the difference to me. So I think, you know, that kind of goes through life whenever anyone comes out as trans, just like if anyone, anyone comes out as gay, you know, so long as you just say, that's absolutely no problem. And, you know, let's deal with this together. I think from there on in, there is hope and people really respond well to, to just knowing that they're not being judged. Jay, Hannah, thank you so much for joining us and talking to us tonight. And congratulations again on Millie. I, mean, I have to say, for the parents of a three-month-old, they were very on it and awake. I'm not sure I would be. Um, but what a lovely couple and how lovely to hear that experience. Oh, they just make me happy. This is the Badass Women's Hour podcast. That's all from tonight's show. Thank you so much for listening. If you enjoyed it, please do rate, review, subscribe. It really helps. It means that other people can find this podcast and we can spread these voices and their stories far and wide. And of course, if you give it five stars, I'll love you forever.
In the meantime, if you want to chat, you can find me Twitter, Instagram, all the social media at Harriet Minter. You've been listening to Badass Women's Hour. If you like the show, then help more people find us. You can tag us or talk to us on social media using at Badass Women's Hour. Or you can be really lovely and leave us a review and a rating. Five stars, please. It helps boost us up the podcast rankings and allows other people to find us. We'll be back next week with more Badass Guests and in-depth chat. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on.